guest today is a forensic pathologist who works for the state of Oregon. He is a medical examiner who conducts investigations on deceased humans, sometimes working independently and at other times with law enforcement on criminal cases. Utilizing modern technology and his extensive skill set, his goal is to determine and explain how people have passed. I had a wonderful time talking with this guy. Here's my friend, Dr. Sean Hurst. All right. Well, Sean, you have one of the most unique careers or jobs of, I would say, anyone in the world. Uh, you, not personally, I imagine, when, when bones are recovered, it's your job to study them and figure out what exactly happened, like cold cases and mysterious murders. You take the knowledge that you have and the information that you've gathered and study those bones to figure out what you can? Essentially, yes. Um, I am a practicing forensic pathologist, uh, and I work in that capacity here in Oregon. Uh, and so generally, the responsibilities of a forensic pathologist are the supervision of death investigations for the purposes of determining cause and manner of death. So that does include cases, you know, where human remains might be found under varying circumstances out in, you know, um, the woods or, you know, any sort of like other area within Oregon. Okay, but you go to work every day and you're dealing with deceased humans. Yes. Yeah. Sounds somewhat dark, <laughs> <laughs> but you seem like you're doing all right. I mean, it, it can be. Yeah, right. Um, there certainly are some challenges associated with the subject matter that we deal with, you know, as most people may find it, you know, traumatic or objectionable. Um, but, you know, everyone that does this job goes into it voluntarily. Uh, and there are certain benefits of the job as well that are attractive to those of us that do it full time. Yeah. In my mind, you're like a detective. Uh, in a sense, uh, we focus more on the medical aspect of things, more so than the criminal aspect of things. You know, a death investigation generally has two sides. There is the medical death investigation and then the law enforcement death investigation. Uh, so people with my training participate mostly on the medical side of the death investigation. So we're interested in collecting information about a person's, you know, usual state of health, any other pathologies or medical diagnoses that they may have had prior to death and then determining how those have factored into a person's death, if they have at all. But it could probably tie somewhat closely to whatever happened, right? Well, yes, and we certainly do participate in criminally sensitive death investigations. Um, you know, that's probably, I think, a general public's view of medical examiner work uh, is our participation in those criminally sensitive cases like homicides and things like that. Uh, that certainly is the way that it's portrayed on the TV shows and in <laughs> pop culture currently. Um, but actually, that's, that's a small percentage of the work that we do overall, maybe about 5% of the total caseload. Okay. Yeah, I was going to say, they make TV shows about your job, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for, for better or worse these days, the job of a medical examiner is increasingly in the public eye. It's fascinating to me how popular these true crime podcasts are and anything involving mysterious death or um, somebody that disappears. Like, people are so fascinated with that stuff. That is true. Yeah, it's it's very dark but it's also enticing for a certain reason. I mean, you you see it portrayed on TV, and then sometimes if it happens to you, you're somehow related to it. You're just like, no way. This I can't believe this is a thing happening to me. So I think people, they find a fascination in it, but also you can, if it is somehow tied to you, you can even get deeper with it. Yeah. Um, so what what is a normal day like for you when you go into the office? Uh, so basically on the days in which we, you know, we're assigned to handle the, the cases for those days, uh, we generally start in the morning with an assessment of the cases that we're going to be examining directly. And then from there, you know, we figure out how we're going to examine those cases throughout the day, what other ancillary testing might be needed in the course of those examinations, uh, and then proceed with the work itself. 
Um, we also have a variety of administrative duties that we also tend to in our day-to-day -day work, um, including really extensive relationships that we have with a lot of other agencies around the state. Um, and so we offer services such as consultation, you know, for other cases that might be considered complex or require the specific expertise of a forensic pathologist, as well as a really uh, extensive educational program in our office. Uh, we often do host medical students and residents from some of the med schools in Oregon uh, and provide education for death investigators throughout the state. Okay. So without getting specific, because we talked about how, how you couldn't really do that, say there is a homicide mm -hmm. and would they ship the actual body to your office? Yes, something like that would require the participation of a forensic pathologist. So uh, that body would be transported to our facility, and then we would undergo the usual examination in line with our standard practices. Is that the autopsy, or has that already happened? Uh, that would be the autopsy itself, yes. Okay, wow, okay. And you, who, who determines whether or not they send it to you? Uh, that's usually a conversation that we have with officials in the county in which the death occurs. Uh, so there are death investigators stationed throughout the entire state that typically work at the county level. Um, so when, you know, deaths occur, those will be reported to us in some manner. Uh, and then we can evaluate the circumstances of those individual cases to determine if it's worth us, you know, applying our expertise to them. Okay. But typically those are cases where they need to figure out certain information, right? Yeah. Typically those are the, the more complex cases. Those are certainly the cases that have a criminal element to them. Mm -hmm. Those are those cases that we will always be involved in. Okay. And you don't have too many people you can bounce things off of though, right? We were talking earlier how there's, there's only about four people in the state who do what you do. It's how many people in the entire country? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. So yes, we have um, six forensic pathologists in Oregon. Uh, four of them uh, work in our main office in Clackamas. Um, but actually, nationwide, forensic pathology is a pretty rare type of expertise that the physicians have. Um, the The most current estimate, I believe, is that there's only about 500 practicing forensic pathologists in the United States that do this work full time, um, and there's an estimated need for about 1,500 to 2,000 of us. Wow. So do you have friends across the country where you can kind of bounce ideas off of or kind of you know, evaluate certain things. I do actually. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, uh, I trained with three other, uh, individuals, uh, all of which I still keep in touch with. We actually have a, a text chat, you know, where we can, uh, sort of run things by each other and bounce ideas off of one another. Uh, and that's actually pretty productive. I, I enjoy keeping up with them. Yeah. It seems like, I mean, similar to any job that you work in, if you're heavily involved in whatever you're doing, you might miss something. And yeah. so if you can kind of get fresh eyes or fresh ears on something, it seems like that would be helpful. Yeah, that's a really good point. You know, objectivity is an important part of this job, um, but everybody has a bias that they, you know, see everything through. So it can definitely be helpful to have uh, assistance from other practitioners as well. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I was going through what you sent me and you said you went to Seton Hall, which uh, is in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. And then the next one, which I hadn't heard of, was St. George's. University, which is in Grenada? Grenada, yes. Grenada, which is an island. <laughs> yes, it is. Just up above Columbia, basically? Yeah. Kind of yeah. down in that area? Yeah. Why do they have a medical school down there? Uh, that might be a discussion that's sort of beyond the scope of this. Uh, but yes, there are a variety of medical schools outside the United States that tend to be popular for Americans, and that's one of them. Yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. I mean, if you can choose to go to any school, <laughs> you're going to get to go to some vacation island. That seems pretty awesome. Yeah, you know, I really did enjoy my experience down there. Uh, it was actually quite conducive to really learning the subject matter well. Um, one of the things that was particularly interesting is that in during my education and the, the time that I spent in Grenada, we actually got to rotate through rural healthcare clinics in Grenada itself, as well as the main hospital in St. George's in Grenada, which is the capital city of the country. Uh, and that was a really interesting experience. As you might imagine, it's much, much different there than in the United States. So do they have different rules and laws and expectations? Why, why not have it in Miami? Why do it down there? Uh, that that's where just where the school is based, and that's where the infrastructure for education is for that particular university. Hmm. Okay, well, that's pretty cool. What, what inspired you to take this path? 
Was there something at some point in your youth or like your teens or your 20s where you decided this is what you wanted to do? Uh, so that's a common way that people end up in this job is that oftentimes people do have a longstanding interest in it and then, you know, pursue all the educational steps to get to this position. Uh, I was a little bit different um, that I knew I wanted to be a pathologist, which is, you know, a medical specialty and something that you choose in med school. Um, but then I didn't have a specific interest in forensic pathology until I was in my residency. And there were two main things. Uh, one is just I was fortunate to have a really good teacher. Um, my initial forensic pathology exposure was in New Jersey during my residency, which is that's where I completed my residency. Um, and it was through a doctor who I really credit with introducing to me the more intellectually stimulating aspects of the job. You know, there is this idea that medical examiners typically just do autopsies all day long, uh, typically in like a dark morgue or like a dark <laughs> corner of another building or something like that. It's like emo music playing yeah, in the background. Exactly. That's another reason, <laughs> another way that that's always portrayed in pop culture, which I really don't understand. Yeah. Um, but uh, there's actually a lot more to the job than just doing the autopsies. That certainly is a big part of the, the technical aspect of the job. Uh, but there's much more to it. Uh, and it's a really, really, intellectually stimulating and rewarding job I found. Um, and so that's where I got early exposure to it that, you know, started to convince me to change my career path. Um, and then the second is unfortunate uh, in that my mother passed away while I was a resident in New Jersey. Uh, and the circumstances of her death were such that it did require involvement of local medical examiners. Wow. Um, and so, you know, those people that were handling her case communicated very directly with me. Um, you know, they were very attentive. They're very compassionate. And I was able to, to see firsthand how that job, when done well, can really positively impact someone who's, you know, faced with a really, really tough time in their life and is grieving. Uh, so those two things together convinced me that this would be something worth my time to pursue. Okay. You probably don't interact with the victims family though, do you? Uh, I, I don't know that victim is the right word, but okay. yes, uh, we what do. Word, what word would you use? Uh, we just, you know, family members of the deceased. Because okay. not, not, not every, as I explained before, not every case that we handled uh, is criminal in nature. For sure. Um, but essentially, yes, uh, we communicate very frequently with family members of the deceased people uh, that we examine. Um, and that is actually one of the more rewarding parts of the job. Okay. To, to maybe uh, accumulate facts and data about their medical history? Yeah, that, that is part of it. We do get a lot of useful information from family members uh, about a person's state of health prior to their death. But, but mainly the information exchange is in the other direction. Uh, we are the ones that are providing them with information about what happened to their family members uh, and helping them better understand what happened. For sure. I had a gentleman on here a uh, couple times, uh, most recently, probably a year and a half ago, and then the, the first time a couple years ago. And he, I forget exactly what his his title was, but he was the first person on the scene hmm. at any sort of um, situation where there's a deceased person. And so he got to experience a, a complete range of death. And because he... I mean, I believe he worked for um, the funeral home. And so he would be sent out to pick up this person. He's just mm -hmm. hanging out, waiting for a call. Mm -hmm. And he would go and have to recover these people. And sometimes they were um, gunshot wounds mm -hmm. from, from suicide. Uh, sometimes they just fell asleep. Like, But when he was there, he always had to interact with the family. And he, that's the part that he enjoyed the most. He yeah. said, yeah, I have to deal with all this crazy stuff, but I get to interact with the family and try to help them cope with what's happening. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not surprised to hear that. Um, again, the people that do this job every day um, generally will identify that as one of the more rewarding parts of the job. Yeah. So you go into work and it could be a new case, or it could be something that you've been working on. I mean, I imagine for six months or a year, sometimes you probably have things that require extensive amounts of time, right? 
Yeah, we can have complicated cases that require a lot of ancillary testing, and sometimes that testing can take some time to complete. Um, as you mentioned before, gathering information is a really big part of the job, uh, and sometimes that can also take some time to appropriately gather all the information we know about a particular person uh, in order to formulate an opinion for cause and manner of death. In a situation where it is um, suspected that there was a, like a nefarious person responsible for whatever happened, do you have to wait for the criminal investigation? And then you can look at that data, or are you guys kind of working together at the same time? We typically work together. Uh, there are certain aspects of examinations and autopsies in that context that might be considered time sensitive, particularly things like collecting trace evidence from a body. Uh, you definitely want to do that as soon as possible. Um, so there is an element of that in those types of cases. Um, so we may wait for some information from law enforcement that could potentially help us in how we work up our cases, but typically those two things happen side by side. Yeah. Because yeah, it seems like for the more dramatic events, they'd probably involve something that would be physical to the body. So it'd be fairly obvious what happened or how they died, but then they have to figure out who did it. Mm -hmm. You're saying you are responsible for looking at their organs? Yes. Essentially? The, the body itself. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So how... How often are you guys responsible for cracking the case? Um, we're, we're part of the overall case. You know, there's the, the criminal aspect of a case, and that's sort of beyond our purview. Um, but we provide information that may aid uh, investigators on the criminal side in how they pursue their investigations. And the information that we provide can occasionally help them determine what the next step should be. Okay. Okay. So maybe you discovered that the deceased person had diabetes or some sort of lung condition or something, and then that helps them figure out what they're looking for? Certainly. So an example of that, you know, might be something that on the surface appears to be suspicious based on, you know, maybe the circumstances under which someone were found, maybe what the scene looks like, you know, maybe what the body looks like in the position in which it's found. Um, and then so we can examine the body and then give a lot more detail about the overall mechanism of death. Sometimes that sort of reinforces the suspicion. Sometimes it helps people sort of take a step back and that a case may not actually be suspicious based on what we're able to find when we do the autopsies. Okay. I imagine it has become a lot easier not to like take away from what you do or, or you know, downplay any of it, but it seems like it would become easier now to kind of figure things out with all the various technology that we have. Uh, security cameras, fingerprints, uh, DNA. I was watching uh, one of the Black Mirror episodes with my oldest son last night, and it it takes place in like the 70s. Mm -hmm. And there's like various, I forget exactly what happened, but somebody gets killed. And I mentioned to him, I was like, oh, they would never be able to figure out who did it. And he's like, what are you talking about? And I was like, it was the 70s. <laughs> like it was, it was different back then. Like how would you catch somebody without DNA? If, as long as you don't have the blood on you or you're carrying the weapon, you could just do something and get away. I mean, that's why they had uh, all these serial killers in the 70s who they couldn't figure out who it was for 30 years. Right? Yeah, I mean, there there is an element of that to the work that we do. Not so much, again, for the the, you know prosecutorial aspect of cases, um, but things like social media that can help us corroborate identities and things like that can be helpful for us. Yeah. So, I mean, do you think it's become easier? Uh, I don't know that it's become easier. Uh, it does definitely give investigators additional tools to use. Okay. Okay, cool. So <laughs> I'm just trying to imagine what it's like. You come into work. Do you ever have a lull? Where you just, maybe one day you come in, you're like, I'm going to play Minesweeper today. Or you just, <laughs> is it just stacked up all the time? Uh, there's always something to do in yeah. our line of work, for sure. Yeah. Wow. And when you were in college and they were uh, training you on, on all these aspects, what was the process like? Did they bring in cadavers? Like, when was the first time you saw 
a deceased person. Yeah, in in med school, uh, most uh, in the early early stages of med school, usually in your first year, you'll take like your basic anatomy classes and things like that. And dissection of cadavers is an important part of that. Um, so I uh, was very interested in that when I was in med school. And then after I completed my anatomy course, actually continued on as one of the people that prepared, you know, cadavers for medical student learning, which was a really good experience. What do you have to do to prepare? Uh, basically just do the dissection. So, you know, there are certain structures that might be taught in certain sections or, you know, um, the education tends to be very systematic, like you cover different parts of the body at different points in the course. Uh, and so occasionally there is a need to perform a more specialized dissection uh, so that a particular structure uh, is able to be presented to the medical student class. So you're physically cutting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like that could also be in line with maybe like a plastic surgeon or just a regular surgeon, someone who works on hearts. Like to me, no offense to you, but I could not do it. <laughs> I could not physically, like my sister, she went to school to become a plastic surgeon and it didn't quite work out and she ended up going to some other things. But I don't have that mindset where I could cut into a body. It takes a special type of person, but it seems like they're all within the same realm. You're just dealing with somebody who has passed and they're working on somebody who's still alive, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, there there are certain aspects I think to every job that uh, from the outside might seem strange or unmanageable. Um, but again, you know, most people that go into this line of work uh, do so with an intense interest in it. Um, and so I would say that most people sort of are mentally capable of managing that part of the job just by the virtue of the fact that that you know that's something that they've chosen to do. Yeah, for sure. Was it weird at first, though, when you were doing that in medical school? Yeah, there there definitely is uh, some learning curve and getting used to that. Um, you know, the, the first time a person sees a deceased person, you know, whether or not that's in an educational context or not, can be a bit dramatic for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Did, did it, anybody ever freak out and quit school? Uh, I, I don't personally know anybody that quit. Um, but yeah, sometimes people do have visceral reactions to seeing a deceased person. Yeah. It's just kind of weird. I mean, I don't know. I honestly don't know if I've ever seen a dead person. I'm trying to think about it, but it's just, uh, the, there's the thing that I'm looking at you and I'm interacting with you right now <laughs> and I can see there's something going on. And when that thing is gone, I think it, part of it is like, cause we don't know what happens. We can't explain it. And maybe someday if we ever figure out what it is and we can explain it, it would be different. But yeah, it's, it's, it's weird. It's uh, it's part of life. And I've, I've had death in my life. And because of the way I view things, I kind of just, I understand that it's a part of it and it's going to happen, but it still doesn't make it any more manageable, I guess. I don't know. Well, I feel that that is something that, you know, physicians in many different types of specialties uh, have the capacity to address, you know. Um, we certainly, you know, can't do anything about that. And certainly death is always going to be a painful thing for the family members of the deceased people. Um, but, you know, as physicians, we can provide some information that may perhaps demystify the process or give information that might help families work towards closure. Uh, and that I think is a really important responsibility for physicians in general. And that's something that we can participate in directly in our line of work. Yeah. I mean, that's the goal of a physician is to help people in various ways, right? You are just doing it after somebody has passed. So it's a little bit different, but it's still, I mean, you're, you're essentially helping the family cope. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. We, for medical examiners in general, usually will consider family members to be the primary recipient of everything that we do in our prime audience. Uh, so it's rare, you know, that we will take actions and not do them in line with family wishes. Yeah. It's, a, it's a big part of the job is, in, you know, interacting with family members um, and providing them that information that they may need. Huh. So you spent some time uh, in New Jersey and then you went down to Grenada. And what happened after you finished school? Where did you go? So after school is when I completed my residency. Uh, so on the path to becoming a medical examiner, um, you know, you first have to graduate medical school, which is four years. Um, and after that, you will pursue a career in pathology. Um, and so that's usually about three or four years, depending on how you go about it. 
after you finish your residency, you'll take a board examination to become certified in that specialty. Uh, and then you'll complete additional training in uh, forensic pathology specifically. And then after that, there's another board examination to become certified in that specialty. And after that, you are a forensic pathologist. So how many years of schooling post high school do you have? Uh, 13. So yeah. 13. Four college, four med school, four residency, one a fellowship. Wow. Are you done or are you going to go back? I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I got enough debt. I'm yeah. good. Hmm. It's quite the path. What, when you, when you go to work every day and you're, you're working on all these, um, these cases, do you ever feel like you're not going to figure it out? Yeah, unfortunately, uh, you know, cases can be complex. And like any other medical specialty, you know, the tools we have at our disposal are not perfect. So there are certain things that we can't necessarily prove in the setting in which we perform our examinations. Um, you know, so for example, uh, anything that might be considered functional is something that we would have a very difficult time proving, um, you know, because when a person is deceased, you know, all bodily function has ceased. Uh, and so that can be a little bit difficult. Um, there are certain blind spots that we do have uh, in our specialty for sure. Can you give me an example of what, what you mean? Uh, so for example, uh, certain blood cancers like lymphomas and leukemias, uh, just the nature of the things that cause you know those diseases are very, very difficult to prove after a person has, has died. You can't test the blood afterwards? Interestingly, no. Uh, the, the cells in a person's blood will sort of degrade very early after a person dies. Uh, and so there's not much information that you can derive from that like you can the living person. Because you're right, examination of a person's blood cells is a really important part of healthcare in the clinical setting. Uh, but that's not something that we can really work with in the postmortem setting. So is there a certain amount of time, like 48 hours? How, how much what, what is the goal to receive a person so that you could test them and, and accumulate as much data as possible? Uh, basically, you know, the, the sooner the better. Mm -hmm. um, for something like that, it, that happens very, very early on in the postmortem period. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying not to ask questions so you don't have to get specific, but I know that there are situations where you guys have been given the bones the remains of someone who who maybe was was uh, buried in the forest and 10 or 20 years have gone by. What is the process for one, trying to figure out who that person is mm -hmm. and two, how they died? So you're right. The, the first thing that has to happen is figuring out who that person was. Um, and there are a variety of ways that we can do that. Uh, these days, DNA is a really important part of that process. Uh, after that, it comes down to examining the remains themselves to see if we can derive any information from them. Uh, when people have been deceased for a really long time, that is admittedly very challenging. Um, so for example, let's say that a person suffered an injury that didn't break a bone or anything like that. Um, well, if a person has decomposed to the point where there's just bones left over, that's not something that we would be able to prove. Um, but sometimes, you know, uh, things can be correlated with like police reports from the time um, that a person may have disappeared or something like that. We do gather a lot of useful information from law enforcement agencies in those types of cases. Okay. But in, in a situation where you recover just like a femur, I mean, that's got to be insanely challenging to figure out who it is, right? Yeah, it can be difficult. Yeah. What is the most important piece of evidence? The teeth? In terms of identifying a person? Yeah. Yeah, dental records are probably the most consistently reliable way to identify a person. Um, we can also sometimes match up, say, personal effects to missing persons reports and things like that. Although, again, that can be very challenging if a person has been uh, deceased for a long period of time, because those may not be present uh, on or near the body anymore. Uh, and then these days, there are increasingly advanced DNA tests that can be done uh, to identify people, including a relatively new practice called genetic genealogy. And what is that? 
that is basically the study of DNA samples in conjunction with like family trees and things like that to try to infer relationships between individuals that then allow you to reach the conclusion of identity within a certain degree of certainty. You talking about 23andMe? Yeah. So those uh, types of genealogy websites can be, you know, uh, important databases to check DNA samples against, provided that you have permission to do so. Hmm. Yeah. I don't remember the exact case, but somebody got busted because one of their relatives used that and they were somehow connected. Yeah. I believe that was, uh, I think that was the Golden State Killer, but I'm not sure about that. Yeah, but but yes, uh, it's uh, that's true. Yeah. Um, that. I know exactly what you're talking about, that there was a link between uh, an old uh, murder and someone's uh, DNA sample that they submitted to one of the genealogy services. Mm -hmm. You think we'll get to a point where we'll all have all of our data in a computer somewhere? And then, I mean, it almost, it won't be like minority report (laughs) with, with where you can view the future, but I mean, everybody will be logged everywhere. You... Yeah, that does sound pretty dystopian, but I would argue that we already have a lot of personal data stored on, you know, the internet and other services that are used in the modern day. Mm-hmm. Do you think that there are less murders now than there were in the past just because it's harder to commit one? Uh, I don't know if it's harder to commit one, but generally, yes, you know, homicide rates have decreased generally throughout the last decade or so um, from, you know, peaks in like the 1980s and things like that. Um, We have seen a spike in homicides and violent crime throughout the pandemic uh, in recent years. Um, But I think the general trend is a decrease in violent crime over a long enough period of time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's not like people will stop doing horrible things, but I'm just saying they're more likely to get caught now. Yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what about, what about ancient Portland history and uncovering like Shanghai tunnels? I mean, if you, it seems like if you tore down a build, not that they would do this, but it seems like if you tore down a building and dug down 15, 20, 30 feet, like you would find some stuff. (laughs) You might. Uh, And uh, if human moraines were found in that type of activity, uh, they probably would come across our office at some point. (laughs) They're calling you up. How long does it take? Say I died and I fell into a mud pit in Louisiana. How long would it take for me to completely disappear? In terms of... Everything. My bones, my teeth... Your, your bones will still be there for a long, long period of time. They're, they're pretty resilient. Uh, your soft tissue and things like that would probably decompose over the course of several years. Huh. But my bones would remain for how long? I mean, we find dinosaur bones, right? And, and we find, you know, human remains that are likely, you know, from Native Americans uh, from, you know, long, long periods of time ago. So that's wild. It seems like it would decompose, but I guess there's something. Do you know what it is inside a human bone or any sort of ma- mammalian bone that remains? Yeah, you know, your bones have a lot of hardy minerals in them and they're relatively inert, you know, meaning that things don't necessarily act on them or, you know, chemical reactions or things in the environment don't really fundamentally change the structure of a bone. Uh, So provided that it is out in the environment exposed to usual environmental conditions, uh, it's probably going to stay intact for a long period of time. Yeah. Wow. It's pretty crazy. There's just the earth is littered with bones. I mean, there's no way around it. That's the other crazy thing is when you think about it, um, people die and then they pay five to $10,000 to get put in a wooden box and then buried in the ground and you're going to decompose. I mean, the only, I've had this conversation with a lot of people, the only benefit of a cemetery is you can go there and lay flowers on somebody's grave, but why... I don't know. It's probably tied to religion. I don't know why you'd. I don't know why you'd care. Yeah, I think you know. There's longstanding traditions for that sort of thing, and uh, that can have a lot of importance for family members. 
you know, in line with people's beliefs and funeral rites and things like that. Um, but, you know, there, there is a movement towards different types of dispositions for human remains. Um, you know, there was a, a story a couple of years ago about how aqua cremation is now uh, a possibility in Oregon. There was a... Um, a funeral service provider in Portland that was doing that for a period of time. Uh, there is a service in Washington uh, for human composting, uh, which is a relatively new thing um, that people tend to be interested in, a more sort of natural way for uh, a person to be handled after they are deceased. What is aqua cremation? Uh, it's basically the use of an alkaline solution that will you know, break a person down into uh, an inert liquid. Uh, it's similar to cremation, but it produces a liquid rather than ashes. Seems like some crazy shit that a serial killer would get. <laughs> right? Well, I mean, people are interested in it because it's a more environmentally friendly way of handling that. I see. Because again, the the, the sort of the byproducts of it um, are not toxic or anything. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. To me, it's just wild that they will fill up land with bones inside a wooden box. You can't ever build anything on top of those lands. That's not good. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's a, it's a wild thing. I, I don't, I don't know. We're always trying to figure it out. We're, we're around for 80 years or so. You get to love some people, you get to hang out, you get to drink some beers, go see some concerts, and then you die. And then, then who knows? I don't know. It's just kind of a weird cycle. And it's so short, but we think it's long, but it's really not. Uh, yeah, and then you're down there at the shop, hanging out, trying to figure things out. Uh, sorry, got lost there for a second. Um, so is there... Is there any reason that you that you go to work and you you think that it's not going to work out? Is there any situation with a person that just makes it more difficult to uncover the truth? Sure. Um, you know, we we tend to have um, complex cases uh, where a person may have a condition that, again, is very difficult to prove in the postmortem setting. Um, so, an example of that might be certain cardiac diseases that could result in, you know, what's called a dysrhythmia. So, basically, that's an abnormal heartbeat uh, that can cause the heart to stop beating. Um, and increasingly, there are conditions that are being discovered that are basically due to genetic changes that cause you know, abnormal heartbeats to develop for a variety of reasons. Cases like that can be very, very difficult for us to handle because, you know, what we do is that we tend to examine the body, um, you know, directly during the autopsy. Uh, we may look at certain tissues under the microscope or things like that. And so what that means is that it requires basically an external manifestation of a disease process that we can identify. Uh, and there are certain diseases that will not produce physical changes in that way. And those can be difficult uh, for us to diagnose diagnosed in the postmortem setting. Like what? So again, like those uh, um, irregularities of cardiac function, uh, they tend to cause death so quickly that they won't necessarily leave any sign that that has occurred. I see. I see. And so how often do you see a, a case come in with a criminal element where they are, are solely relying on you. It seems like, I mean, what, what, what is the split between cases where you're, you're figuring out completely and the criminal element is what figures it out? Or is it just like a symbiosis all the time? Yeah, it's, it's definitely collaborative. Um, the process in the ideal setting is an even exchange of information between the medical examiners and law enforcement officials. Is there any benefit to working in Oregon or do you feel like you could you could do different things in different states? Um, I, I think that, you know, we've been in Oregon uh, for some time now. So this is definitely where we're going to continue to 
to live and where I'm going to continue to practice. But that is actually something that's pretty interesting about the job itself um, is that there is a lot of regional variation. Um, and so, um, as I mentioned, I did my training for forensic pathology in Florida um, and then moved out here a couple years after uh, I finished my fellowship in Miami. Uh, and the way that the job is done in Miami is completely different than the way that it's done out here. And I find it really, really interesting. Why is it different? Uh, a lot of it has to do with the way that systems are structured. Uh, there is a variety of ways that death investigation uh, is undertaken across the United States. Uh, and so the way that it's done in Miami is done in a very specific way that works in that particular setting. Uh, whereas the way that it's done out here is structured in a way that makes it more manageable in this particular setting. But how? So like based on regional aspects. Yeah. Um, so a lot, some of it has to do with sort of the, the nature of the jurisdiction that you cover. So in Miami, you know, that, that's a large city um, and there is a large enough population that can justify a standalone medical examiner's office just in that location. Whereas here in Oregon, um, you know, compared to other states, the population is relatively small. You know, even our largest city tends to be pretty small by other standards across the United States. And so our system is one that needs to balance, you know, the need to perform competent and professional death investigation, but also manage those resources across a really wide area because Oregon has a lot of rural areas. Um, and so the way that you might consider doing that is a little bit different than the way you might consider structuring a medical examiner's office in a big city. Okay. Do you ever have to travel anywhere or are you always just... For the most part, we're in the Portland metro area. Uh, my main work site is in Clackamas. Um, but occasionally, yes, we do have to travel um, different locations throughout the state. Uh, as part of my job, uh, I often attend conferences or have meetings with people in various locations around the state. So uh, now, you know, that the, the pandemic is more or less receding, we're able to engage in in-person meetings again, which is, which is encouraging. Uh, we also testify in court fairly frequently. Uh, and then... Uh, testimony in uh, criminal cases almost always will be done in person. So when we have to testify in court, we'll travel to those locations as well. What typically do you have to testify about in court? Uh, typically our findings, um, our qualifications to do the work that we do, uh, and then our opinions about cause and manner of death. And do they ever dispute what you come back with? Sometimes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Based on what? Um, there, it's not uncommon for there to be opposing expert witnesses. So, you know, we can testify to our activities, uh, in a particular case. Um, but the defendant may have an attorney that, um, secures the services of an expert witness to perhaps provide a different theory about how that person died or how that person sustained injuries. Hmm. So you could have essentially a different Sean Hurst just on the other side of the aisle battling with you. But it seems weird if, if it's based on fact and science that anyone could argue whatever you came up with. Well, there's different ways of interpreting information for sure. Hmm. But that's not, I mean, is that your goal? I guess it would be if you're in court, your goal is to, to prove your point. Right. I'm yes. Our goal is to, you know, first and foremost, provide a death investigation service that's objective. Yeah. Uh, and then in the court setting, yes, our, our goal is to testify to those findings in a similarly objective way. So do you know much about the way that things work in different countries? Uh, a little bit, but not very much. Yeah. Yeah. All, all of my experiences in the United States. And it seems that the United States is it a good place to practice this career. It's one of the few places where you can get the training to do this type of job. Um, the United States has, you know, defined and accredited forensic pathology training fellowships as part of um, residency and postgraduate education. Uh, that's actually pretty uncommon throughout the world. Just because the, the money aspect? I don't know about that. Um, medical examiner work, so forensic pathology as a specialty, really has its roots in the United States. The The first real medical examiner's office that resembles um, ME offices as they exist in the modern day uh, was actually in New York City. In the 1890s. Close. The early, early 1900s. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, but do you have any idea what they did back then to determine? I mean, they didn't know anything back then. So there's actually a really interesting, uh, I forget who the author is, but there is a book called The Poisoner's Handbook, uh, worth a read. It's, it's a very, very good book, but it basically chronicles uh, how that type of death investigation became prominent in the United States. And at the time, uh, a common way that people were murdered was through poisoning uh, because it was very difficult to prove, right? Yeah. They didn't really have uh, tests to prove that a person was poisoned in a certain way. Uh, and so there was basically a physician, because uh, at the time they didn't have medical examiners, but there was a physician and a toxicologist that worked closely together. And they developed a lot of methods for proving the presence of certain toxins and certain poisons in people's organs. And that became the basis for autopsy pathology and forensic pathology. And that grew into the modern medical examiner system that we have now. Wow. Yeah, so, it's, a, it's a pretty interesting story. Yeah. So it originated as trying to discover why people had been poisoned. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like a legit way to take care of your enemy. Yeah. At the turn of the century, it was, it was uh, much more common than it is today. Yeah. Because yeah, I mean, what's left now? Ricin, which they can test for. I mean, they could test basically for anything, right? With the right laboratory, yes, you could essentially test for just about any substance in a human. Huh. That's wild. It's a, it's a long history. Uh, but yeah, I feel like, I mean, it, it's like the Wild West. You think of anything that happened before 1900. I mean, that was a significant change in human history. Like, you, <laughs> it's another thing I used to always say, say to my kids. Um, in the Wild West, in the 1850s, 60s, 70s, all you had to do if you wanted out of town yeah, I go to town, I'm hanging out with you. I'm like, hey, I'm John Smith. I ride my horse 25 miles away and I become Chad Ritchie or something. No one has <laughs> any idea. What well, is interesting to think about how rapidly technology has developed over the last, you know, 100 years or so. Yeah. Yeah, it has become almost impossible to not be who you are, which is a good thing, but it's also kind of a scary thing. Yeah, I think about that a lot, too, um, is it is very, very difficult to exist in the modern day without leaving some sort of footprint, right? Yeah, you can try, but it's practically impossible. I yeah. imagine it's very difficult. Yeah, yeah. you have to have a, a license of some sort mm -hmm. or an ID or a passport. And I mean, you have to get a job. I mean, you could, I guess, work under the table somewhere, but like, there's going to be some way that someone knows who you are. Mm -hmm. And that's what's fascinating to me is when they, when I see, I mean, I'm not that heavily into it, but when I see something on the news where they, they have no idea who a person is, I'm like, how? Yeah, right. How's that possible? I mean, I guess if you're born in Mexico and you don't know who your parents are, there's no birth certificate, you come across, like, there's different ways, but... It's pretty hard not to be accountable anymore. Mm -hmm. Or if you've ever just had a cell phone for any point in your life, you know, that also will produce a lot of identifying information yeah. about you. I mean, what you've done. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the, the credit score system mm -hmm. and having a debit card or a bank account or anything like that. There's some places that won't take cash anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Which seems crazy. <laughs> isn't, it, isn't it written on there uh, for, for legal tender or, you know what I mean? Like... That's, that's, that's really crazy. You can't even use cash some places anymore. It is a wild world. Um, and yeah, you're, you're in this position where you're helping people out and uh, figuring out things that have happened long ago. Do you have any cases that you have been working on for years? Do you have things that you, you look at on Monday morning, you come in, I'm going to, I'm going to try that one more time. And then you're like, okay, I can't, I'm going to work on this other thing. Do you have something that's just been back on the back burner? So most of the cases that have persisted for many years are what we were talking about before. So usually like bones, you know, where you may not be able to identify who a person was. Um, but, you know, this last couple of years has actually been really productive in that respect as we have been using genetic genealogy type services uh, and we have identified quite a few people um, that have been persisted in being unidentified for many years previously. Um, so those that subset of cases, um, it's possible that, you know, they will be active cases for long periods of time um, while we either wait for additional information to surface or um, we're able to utilize the DNA testing because even that's not a magic bullet. 
you know, you still need to find family members to compare the DNA to. Um, it's not like the DNA by itself will tell you who a person is. But can you take the DNA of a deceased person's bones that you found and put it in that 23andMe database and... Is under, that, are there legal issues with that? Yes, definitely. So uh, under very, very specific circumstances, you might be able to do that, uh, but it's not terribly common. Huh. But I feel like it's probably not too far away. Uh, that's that's probably a, a legal question. All you got to no. do is change the, the terms of services, you know, in the agreement you sign. Yeah, there definitely would be, I think, a balance between a person's privacy and the utility of that information for government services like medical examiners or law enforcement. I, I imagine that probably will be something that, you know, attention that exists in the future. Yeah. Are there any uh, groundbreaking technologies that you're aware of that we're like on the cusp of discovering? You feel mm. like we're kind of plateauing? In terms of medical technology more generally? Yeah, or? like in, in terms of what you use to do your job. What we use. Um, so there, there's always going to be advances, I think, in forensic pathology specifically, um, because there's a lot of different ways of examining uh, people's tissues post-mortem. Um, so for example, recently I learned about different ways that a person's, uh, the fluid in a person's eye can be tested for actually a, quite a large variety of substances, uh, which could potentially give you useful information about a person's state of health prior to death. So something like that would be really interesting. Um, I think that DNA testing probably will become higher and higher resolution as time goes on, which then will allow us to procure more usable DNA from increasingly degraded specimens. You think about, you know, these days you can you can isolate usable DNA from bones that are small or charred or, you know, degraded in some very significant way. Uh, and, you know, 10 years ago, you wouldn't have been able to do that. So I think mm -hmm. that there still will be advances in that. Um, another thing that we're seeing sort of uh, interesting steps forward is in his postmortem imaging. Um, you know, there's a lot of ways that a person can have imaging in the hospital, um, but that hasn't really filtered out into the medical examiner world quite yet, but it, that's beginning to, and that's potentially very helpful for us as well. Just in terms of getting x-rays taken? Uh, more like the advanced stuff like CT scans or MRIs and things like that. Most of the work that medical examiners use utilizes x-rays. Okay. What, what, what makes a CT scan more advanced? It's higher resolution. It gives you more detail uh, in the images that are produced. Uh, you can basically examine a much larger surface area of the body with that. Huh. Fascinating. Yeah, there's, there's all kinds of crazy stuff happening uh, in the medical field that allows us to live longer and allows us to uncover mysteries, but also... It's just wild to me that we have come so far and created so many things, but we've also like damaged so much. You you have all these chemicals that uh, Monsanto is pouring all over crops that are giving us cancers that we don't even know about yet. I mean, there are so many things that have made life better. And then you think about like plastic. I was talking about some. Uh, I was talking about this the other day with someone. Plastic is one of the greatest inventions in the history of mankind, but it has also wrecked the world. And now you have microplastics in the ocean and they're inside you and me just from drinking water. Like there's all this crazy shit happening. It's like every time we make an advancement, it kind of knocks us back in a different way. It's, um, I don't know. It's like we're fighting to kill ourselves. <laughs> and that's a little bit beyond uh, my purview of my <laughs> scope of practice. Uh, well, do, do you enjoy what you do? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Do you, do you ever get off work and go, oh man, I can't believe I have to come back here and do this again tomorrow. Yeah, I think that, you know, any medical job is inherently challenging uh, because there's a lot of stressors in you know, physician work. Um, in our work specifically, uh, it can be challenging because, you know, we're sort of frequently exposed to content that others might consider objectionable or traumatic. And there, there is the potential for vicarious trauma and things like that. You know, even though we do this and we've chosen to do this, we're not immune to that sort of thing. Um, so that is something that has been increasingly recognized in our workforce in recent years um, and both our national organization as well as as many employers across the United States, Oregon included, provide a lot of useful resources for that if they're needed. 
various types of therapy, PTSD, that kind of stuff? Yeah, therapy um, is something that you can usually work with your employer for, um, you know, uh, generally speaking, uh, health benefits and medical benefits in Oregon tend to be pretty generous. Mm -hmm. Um, So there is the opportunity to address that uh, if needed, which is good to see. Yeah. Yeah. I also interviewed a guy, uh, his name is Don Porth, and he was a firefighter for for 20 or 30 years. Mm -hmm. And... I asked him about what it was like to come up on a scene where somebody's mangled, you know, there, there's some horrible stuff happening. Yeah. And he said, you eventually just, uh, I can't remember exactly what words he used, but you kind of normalize yourself to it. And yeah. he said the only time that really affected him or his friends that were other firefighters is when they somehow associated that person to someone in their life. Mm-hmm. Like maybe they come upon a car wreck and there's an eight-year-old girl and they have like an eight-year-old niece. And so I, I understand that, that there's still the human aspect no matter what's happening, but maybe it doesn't quite hit you until it feels more real. Yeah, I mean, you know, for better or worse, there can be sort of a desensitization that occurs when um, you experience that frequently in the course of your employment. Uh, and, and that's something that, you know, as a practitioner in this field, you really sort of have to keep an eye on uh, and always sort of check in with yourself when, you know, you deal with difficult cases or things that are particularly traumatic. Yeah, yeah, just come home and have a conversation with your wife and yeah. maybe she's like, hey, maybe you should not go to work tomorrow. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's a tough job, man. I mean, we're talking about how unique it is and how important it is in the way that you help people find closure with everything. But God, that must be brutal sometimes. Yeah, there, there definitely can be that very human aspect to it. Um, and as I said earlier, you know, it, it's good that those types of effects or the potential for those types of effects are increasingly being recognized in our field specifically. Because, you know, we talk about like, you know, the, the true first responders, you know, like you mentioned, the firefighters or the paramedics or uh, even the people from the funeral homes that tend to be involved in deaths in, you know, the community. Um, it's sort of evident that that type of exposure could potentially be detrimental to a person's mental health. But that, that that realization has been a little bit slower to to come to in our specialty, but it is occurring now. Mm-hmm. Well, what what do you think about uh, TV shows that glorify this type of work? Are you just laughing at everything they're talking about? <laughs> is it just ridiculous? <laughs> my my wife's a big fan of those types of shows. Uh, admittedly, I I can't watch them. <laughs> <laughs> You're like that doesn't happen. Yeah, yeah. I guess it's got to be pretty bad. <laughs> They're like, there's a fingerprint there. There's another one. We found him. You're yeah. like, no, it doesn't work that way. Well, you know, there there is a tendency in TV shows in general to sort of make things as dramatic as possible. Yeah. And, you know, like sometimes a job is a job, you know, uh, it's, it's not always that dramatic in our, our day-to-day type of work. Yeah. I so. mean, like you said earlier, there's a lot of paperwork. <laughs> yeah, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, do you have anything, is there any sort of long-standing, mysterious, completely unsolved thing that's maybe not pertinent to Oregon, but just anywhere in the world that you, I mean, what do you, what do you do in your, in your spare time? Do you <laughs> think about this or do you just disassociate and, and do other things? Uh, I try not to. I mean, I'm a, I uh, tend to try to compartmentalize as much as possible. Yeah. Uh, you know, leave the work at work and yeah. then, uh, you know. Yeah. So you're not staying up till midnight trying to solve mysteries. Uh, no, you know, I, I think it's important to have a healthy balance between work and life. Yeah. Especially in this type of work. Yeah. Uh, I always forget her name and I always call her Patton Alzot's wife, which is not cool, but do you know who I'm talking about? I do. Yeah. Yeah. She was just a, a rogue, uh, internet mystery solver. And I mean, would stay up all night long, put piecing things together and making connections and it's so cool that she uncovered, I believe it was the Green River Killer, right? I think so, yeah. Yeah. She figured out that 30-year-old case, but it wrecked her because hmm. she's just thinking about this stuff all the time and staying up late. And then she had to get on various antidepressants. And it is, it has the ability to tear you apart if you can't regulate it. And it sounds like you can regulate it. You... You go to work, you take care of what you got to take care of, you leave it and you come back home, you do other things. It's a, it's a balance, right? 
Yeah, I think that's just an essential skill, uh, certainly in physician training, um, but really, you know, in any type of work that has a traumatic component to it. I think it's just really important for people to learn how to manage those stressors in a healthy way, or at least to identify when they're responding to things, perhaps in an unhealthy way, so that, you know, then they can sort of seek treatment for that. Yeah. So are you, uh, when you go to family events, family reunions, hanging out with your parents or whatever, Sorry, not your mom. Uh, do do are people just asking you crazy questions all the time? You're like, hey, I can't talk about that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there is a significant degree of interest in this at this work in the general community right now. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you're like, you're like housing CIA secrets, basically. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, I can't talk about that. Well, I mean, that, yeah, exactly. That's an essential function of the job is safeguarding the confidentiality of the information that we deal with. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can potentially harm the case that you're working on if you share details, right? And somebody found out? Absolutely. Um, certainly in a criminal case, you know, uh, if certain details become public, that can definitely impact uh, the criminal investigation. Um, so that's sort of a common practice is to not release any information in active criminal investigations. Uh, that's something that shows up on the TV shows a lot, which is actually pretty accurate. <laughs> but even in, uh, you know, the, the cases that are not criminally sensitive, you know, you have to, you have to really keep in mind that the people that you're dealing with and the cases that you're handling, they're still people, even though people are deceased, you know? Um, and so with that comes a lot of information about a person's health or their lifestyle or things like that. Um, and it's really important to make sure that information is safeguarded uh, and not available to others that don't have the, you know, the need to examine it. Well, also the right tools. Mm -hmm. You have different tools. It's also really important for family members as well. Yeah. Uh, that they know that the information that they're providing to us, you know, whether it's good, bad, embarrassing, whatever, is going to be kept confidential. Yeah, for sure. Wow. Well, it's very cool. It's a very interesting, very uh, difficult, very rewarding, unique, crazy job. <laughs> uh, and I appreciate you coming and talking with me and sharing everything about it. It's right. really cool. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you.